All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? <laughs> Hello, out there. I have to admit that it's gross trying to find a good case, a lesser known case, a fresh angle to quote cover when researching gruesome murder. It's gross. I read plenty of crime articles 
I look into case suggestions from listeners. I tune into other true crime podcasts, hoping to find something I think I can work with. But at the risk of sounding like a douchebag, truly, everything I've ever covered has kind of found me. The way I normally find a case for Dark Topic is by first deciding what I want to talk about in the beginning. In this case, I thought I wanted to talk about scumbags who stalk their ex-girlfriends. Then I just start Googling away until I find a story that fits well with my hello out there introduction, which I usually write the bulk of before I even know what the case will be. And I thought I'd talk about this process because this time I found the episode through an odd detail in a seemingly typical stalking and harassment case that came from that process, uh, but not in the typical way. I was looking into Stephen Rose from Scotland, who's in his early 40s, a DJ, which I always think is cool when a guy's in his 40s and he's a DJ, still rearing white guy with a FUBU hat on sideways. Hipping kids to the classics. Heavy D, J Master J, man. These youngsters don't even know hip-hop. He's robbing 20-year-olds for their coke in the club's restroom. Let me show you how to do a line of blow. Let me show you how to do it. Give me that bag. Empties the bag in the back of the toilet and rips the whole thing past three nose rings. And I'm just sharing personal stories now of that time a DJ ripped me off for my drugs in a club bathroom. But let's get back to the point here. Steven Rickarickarose is just your run-of-the-mill scumbag, especially when it comes to girls. And that's probably no surprise. I was reading about what he'd done to his most recent ex when he introduced me to the subject of today's episode. So, he'd been trying to hang on to this girl, Melissa, who had left Steve because he's abusive. And Steven managed to get her back briefly, pulling out all the usual tricks, promising to change behaving himself for a little while, being sweet. Then, once he thought he had her back, like really had her hooked this time, he began accusing her of wanting to initially leave him because she was wanting to cheat on him, which is classic. It couldn't be she wanted to leave because you're insufferable, Stephen. It has to be her fault somehow. And he's telling her what to wear now, demanding she not use makeup, the typical controlling shit choking her down in a bed, taking racy photos of her after getting her drunk, then trying to blackmail her. She left him once. She's not going to leave him twice, unless it's in a body bag. And at this point in my research, I'm saying to myself, where's the body bag? You know, where's this headed? Is this just a playbook I'm reading for every loser I've ever met who has tried to hold down a relationship with both hands wrapped around the girl's throat? But then he's Chasing her around with a baseball bat, and her family begins trying to pull her out of the situation. She gets her out, pulls her out. I'm like, okay. And he's telling her that he has cancer, trying to get her back into the relationship. I'm like, all right, well, can't work with this so far. And when she finally completely leaves him, Stephen Rose does something I've never come across in the whole wide world of scumbag skullduggery. He begins Googling for American killers with a chance of parole in 2021 and soon finds Jeffrey Franklin of Alabama, a deranged teenager when he was first locked up in the late 90s, but now is about Stephen Ricka Rose's age. Jeffrey Franklin, a man that appears capable of eating your soul through a photograph, the thick glasses, the helplessly insane gaze, like he's trying, really trying not to look, unwell. 
will be Rose's next weapon, against his ex. Stephen Rose doctors up an envelope to appear as though it's been sent from an Alabama penitentiary and stuffs a photo of Franklin, along with an anonymous letter with his best American lilt woven into the wording, and addresses it to his ex-girlfriend, Melissa, before sending it off to her. Melissa receives the odd letter and is terrified for a time. She calls the Scottish police, but they tell her the whole thing seems stupid, because it is. She's really scared, because when she Googles Jeffrey Franklin, it is 2021, and Franklin, like the letters speak about, is coming up for a parole hearing, and if he gets out, he says he's coming to see her. But the more she thinks about it, she's like, this really is fucking, this is dumb. Why would this killer from the States begin writing me while I live in the UK? Writing me these threatening letters when we've never had any communication beforehand just starts targeting me out of the blue. And a light bulb goes off. Stephen, of course, is behind this. And when she brings her suspicions to a prosecutor, as the police won't help her, the prosecutor does the police work himself and discovers that, yes, this is a pretty serious case. And Stephen Rose is terrorizing this poor girl. And that's about the end of that story right there. Keep those eyes cocked, those... No, it's just not good enough, you see. Unfortunately, when it comes to true crime podcasting, most of us are reading crime articles, searching for the bloodbath. So, did he kill her? No. Okay, next. You know, it's gross, like I said in the beginning. So, okay, he killed her, but did he do anything freaky with the body? Uh-uh. Well, then, bye bye Can't use it. Next. Google. Rape. Wood chipper. Huh. Did anyone die getting actually shoved into a wood chipper? Oh, they did? Did he rape her? Oh, fucking awesome. Can use it. <laughs> this true crime podcasting stuff is greasy. You can lose yourself real quick, churning out murder and misery as entertainment. And the way I justify my approach to it is by putting a moral or a warning at the forefront. I choose the dilemma, the difficulty, the dark topic, myself usually. But in the pursuit of a case to match whatever I'm prepared to talk about, the cases, like I said, more often than not, they seem to choose me in that process. And that, in my mind, lets me off the hook. You know, it's fate. And I actually buy that. I buy that with my true crime podcasting blood money. As soon as I saw Jeffrey Franklin's wild eyes and sinister smile beaming out from the back window of a squad car circa 1998, I had to know, what did this young man do? And this is my way of cheating on Stephen Rose. His girlfriend didn't do it. She didn't cheat on him. And still, she paid a price. So I'll kind of do it for her. I don't care about the Rose case suddenly. Rose is boring. I want to know what Jeffrey did. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. What Jeffrey did. I can see why Rose chose Jeffrey Franklin. He's a scary guy. And they might even let him out. He's been denied twice so far, but he's still young. A major benefit of getting started early if you're a homicidal psychopath. Jeffrey Franklin is fleeing from the scene of his horrific crimes in a blue Geo Metro when we first lay focus on him. Jeff is 17 years old. Then he was. Today, 
Like I mentioned, he's in his early 40s, same as the deviant DJ from the intro, and if he hadn't done what he was running from on the evening of March 10th, 1998, maybe Jeffrey Franklin could have been scratching records on the weekend and bullying young girls during the Wicca Wicca Week, too, and that's the last one. But in all seriousness, he did something pretty bad back there, back before he hopped into his Geo, shirtless, though it's cool, cold out here in the mid-march air in Huntsville, Alabama. He's flying through the dark residential neighborhood. A witness will later report seeing a dozen cop cars attempting to stop the little blue car with the shirtless, mop-top teenager at the wheel. He runs one cruiser off the road in front of a church, blowing its tires, before turning down a dead-end street, holding a clutch of small mansions. Jeffrey mistakes one of the long driveways for a street and ends up crashing into a wrought iron fence. The normally peaceful cul-de-sac is alive with sirens and doused in strobing blue light. Dogs are barking. The canine unit is unleashed on the blue geo and its driver submits immediately. News crews are on the scene and they capture the teenager's arrest. He is wild-eyed, laughing maniacally, cackling, really. Jeffrey Franklin has a pitchfork and a pentagram scrawled into his chest. He spits at a photographer and shouts lewd oaths at some of the female reporters before being shoved into the back of a cruiser. More photos are snapped. White Flash is now fighting the blue for dominance in the dark yard, where a demon is on display, hissing and grinning behind the glass of the arresting vehicle. The blood that once covered him is almost entirely washed off. Despite frigid temps for the area, Jeffrey had stopped to dunk himself in a pond before being spotted. The person who spotted him had heard the bolo for the young man covered in blood driving the blue geo and had called him in. He should be shivering, but Franklin appears heated. The blood that remains on his bare torso gives his skin a crimson hue. And roll tide, we are in Alabama. Who is he? What did he do? Schmeagle. In the photographs, Jeffrey looks just like Schmeagle, transitioning into Gollum laid up on a rocky riverbank, chewing a live fish's slimy guts through decaying teeth. Something seems to have a hold of him. And as we'll find out, it's a devil named Ritalin. His classmates would later share that something had been off with Jeffrey in the months, years, leading up to this night's disaster. Some said he'd been worshipping the devil, which was true, in a way. He was fascinated with the occult. His musical and literary interests have been focused on it. I wouldn't say he was worshipping the devil so much as studying the devil, which isn't unusual for many teenagers, though things seem to have ramped up recently for him with the pentagram and pitchfork scrawled into his chest. Jeffrey was by all accounts an intelligent kid, though he was clearly hampered by some mental issues. His family had been on pins and needles around him as he went through the gauntlet that is age 14, 15, 16... Those years where one feels they simultaneously have it all figured out, while in truth, knowing nothing at all. He's diagnosed as ADHD, medicated. Jeffrey takes a liking to snorting his Ritalin. His Ritalin dose increases as uh, time goes on. The doctor, happy to increase his dose, the happier Jeffrey seems to be. And the snorting of his Ritalin really ramps up in the days leading up to whatever the hell's going on here to whatever Jeffrey did. 
He is heavily abusing his prescription, and he has not slept a wink in days. He does wink at a camera from the back of the cruiser before being driven away, but it will be some time after being paraded through the white and blue flashes of this now haunted street before he'll close those eyes simultaneously. It's like he's got an electric rod shoved up his ass. He seems frozen stiff in some macabre form of ecstasy. There's nothing in those eyes. Zero. It's almost as if what he's done has taken him away with it. What Jeffrey did. Well, if you listen to the still wild-eyed, now 42-year-old, he didn't do anything. It was a beast with horns that got inside and started calling the shots. But he's better now. Yeah, got God inside now. Yeah, much better. Still looks like he's got a cattle prod humming between his butt cheeks, but I think perhaps maybe that's just what it looks like when the spirits are moving you. Jeffrey Franklin attempted to annihilate his family. Leading up to the crime, his parents had been concerned with his behavior. They tried locking up his medication, but Jeffrey broke into the lockbox by removing the hinges. Like we already have covered, he was a clever boy, but more than that, he was an out-of-control, insufferable brat who clearly had no respect. He was the eldest child, and his siblings feared their beefy big bro with the obnoxious little afro, walking around with his shirt off, casting spells, apparently, being just generally disturbing. It could be a living hell. If you're in a house with an entitled freak who has somehow taken control of things, there's nothing much more dangerous than an out-of-control teenage boy. The Franklins have reached out to their church, and the priest had ensured them that Jeffrey was just going through a phase, that God would find him. And here's the problem with phases. Sometimes the so-called phase kills us, or someone else. A phase isn't something that needs to run its course. A phase is something one needs to be walked through, talked through. And if you're going to put it in God's hands, then you might as well just drop it on the floor like an egg. Not because God doesn't exist, but, in my opinion, because God, or whatever you want to call it, isn't your fucking babysitter. Your kid wants to kill you? He's looking at you like your lunch? Well, I'm no expert, but just a suggestion. Take him out for lunch, talk to him, acknowledge him, and if he's still being a creepy psycho freaking out the babies along with you and your wife, then shit, it's tough stuff. But you just gotta sprinkle some fentanyl on his Fruit Loops one morning. And I'm joking. I don't know. Call the guy in the robe at the church who's never been married or had kids, I guess. Take his advice. In a notebook, the then 17-year-old had written of his plans. Quote, I know Dad will be home at this time, and I'm going to be... I'll wait by the front door behind the little hutch, and I'll hit him with my hammer. Mom will be out on a walk. When she comes back, I'll have the radio playing loudly. I'll call in Mom to the room and ask her what's on the agenda for today. Then I'll kill her. And what about the brothers and sisters? Well, I'll take them. I'll strangle my little brother in his room, and I'll lure my other little brother into his room and strangle him. Then my sister, I'll rape her, and I will finish her off. End quote. And that's not exactly what happened. Not exactly what Jeffrey did. But it's close. Armed with a mechanic's file, butcher knife, sledgehammer, and a hatchet, Jeffrey decides on the evening of March 10th, 1998, to kill everyone in the house. 
And it is absolutely true that he's pretty far out in the moment, sleep-deprived and intensely stoned, convinced that the devil is in him, which again, if you subscribe to such things, if you believe in more, evil could have been whisking by while Jeffrey Franklin's eye sockets had his soul for sale in the windows. There's a part of me that believes mental illness works like rot for psychic energies to slip through, usually negative, but let's stay focused here. He's about to kill everyone in his house or attempt to, this is what Jeffrey did. We can work from the first witness. A friend comes calling on the eldest Franklin daughter, 14, after dinner, and while the sun is no longer smiling, there's enough light left over for the girl to feel confident in walking around the house when nobody answers the door, to slip through a side gate, to check the backyard for her friend. In the backyard, she comes face to face with Jeffrey, wild-eyed and breathing heavy. He's standing a few steps from the side door and had maybe been alerted by the girl screwing around so much out there. He is shirtless. It's cold enough to have snowed a little earlier that day, but Jeffrey appears warm enough in his fresh coat of warm blood. The two look at one another in the fading light, both a little stunned, both tongue-tied by the awkwardness of youth and by the awkwardness of this situation. You know, the awkwardness of the potential questions, the potential answers. Then what? Then what did Jeffrey did? Thankfully, the girl decides to run away. Doesn't ask a word. And this is quite wise, I might add. She knows Jeffrey. She knew instantaneously that there was only one way out. And that was to take advantage of her space from him and his momentary shock of seeing her. Once those eyes had stopped spinning, she knew she would have been next. The girl runs home and tells her parents what she saw, and the police are summoned. Jeffrey Franklin takes this opportunity to drive away in the little blue geo, eventually washing off in a local pond where he's spotted, under the moon, whispering and giggling to himself, muttering about something precious, perhaps. When the police arrive, and they arrive immediately, they've been called before to this residence about Jeffrey and what Jeffrey was doing. It's dark. They spot something on the pavement in front of the garage, it's a child, bleeding badly, and barely alive. Before we continue, I should make clear that the children, now adults, have been necessarily protected in most news reports. And because I'm a fucking great guy, I'm not going to name him here either. But this is a little boy, aged eight. He has been attacked with a hatchet, paramedics are summoned, and they'll soon rush him away. He'll survive. Inside the house, officers find a 14-year-old girl. She has been attacked with a hatchet and a kitchen knife. Close by lays a six-year-old boy. Some reports say he is nearly decapitated. Still breathing, though. Incredibly, all three siblings of Jeffrey Franklin survived their horrific injuries. Another sister avoids physical harm by being at a dance class this late evening. The mother and father are not nearly so lucky. In Jeffrey's room, surrounded by satanic writings, art, cassette tapes, lays his mother. She's in the fetal position, and she has been stabbed to death with a crude instrument known as a rat tail file, a tool normally used for enlarging circular holes in woodworking, from what I could gather. And if I got that wrong, don't bother with the emails. This isn't shop class. The main point here is that Jeffrey used this small, somewhat blunt and crude weapon to stab his mother to death in his bedroom which must have been a very up-close and personal situation, as murder often is. 
After he killed his mom, he'd then gone on to his younger sister and brothers and started whacking them with the hatchet, smacking them with the dull end, chipping away at them with the sharp end, and it's incredible that the small ones survived. He used the back and the front of the hatchet on little ones and mainly aimed for the neck and the head. But then dad came home and maybe he slowed his little axe chops and his younger brothers and sisters, them screaming in there and him just whacking away mercilessly. Jeffrey had to stop, though he was having so much fun, and meet his father at the door with a sledgehammer. He clubbed his father Jerry over the head over and over and over until he stopped moving after he came in the front door. It wasn't long after this that he had his stare down in the backyard with the neighborhood girl then fled in the small blue Geo Metro. This is what Jeffrey did. While being interrogated, one investigator lays a map of the house in front of Jeffrey. It's a sketch from a bird's eye view of the home's layout. Jeffrey is given a pencil and asked to draw out the sequence in which he killed or attempted to kill his family members. Jeffrey takes the pencil and begins circling the house with it. He does this over and over speeding up and presses with such force that the lead tip breaks off then he's tearing into the paper screaming and slobbering and speaking of a devil with long horns and big eyes that had killed them jeffrey is taken to a private cell and put on watch days later a blood test will show he still has enough ritalin in him to overdose a first-time user to avoid the death penalty Jeffrey Franklin pleads guilty to three attempted murders and two first-degree slayings. His attorneys decide against trying for an insanity defense as the journals found in their client's bedroom had extensive entries about plans for this massacre. Today, Jeffrey feels screwed by that decision, believes that he had a great shot at an insanity defense, and I don't disagree. Jeffrey Franklin receives three life sentences to be served consecutively. In Alabama... An inmate sentenced to life is eligible for parole after 15 years. And since Jeffrey received three life sentences, one would think that would make him eligible after 45 years. But no, Jeff has already been denied twice, once in 2016 and again in 2021. And who knew Alabama would be so lenient on murder? He is up next in 2026, and because he's still only in his early 40s, there's a good shot he gets out someday. At which point, the question no longer will be what Jeffrey did. But what will Jeffrey do? do it i want to make sure i share out the youtube channel run by a guy local to this case and where i got most of the information i couldn't find elsewhere big bake on the move youtube channel there's a link in the show notes he even did a drive around the neighborhood and visited the graves of cindy and jerry franklin two parents who by all accounts loved their kids and each other dearly this crime greatly affected the community and big bake being a part of it does a great job covering this case on his channel I was going through some comments on a few reports on YouTube and came across this one that I meant to share. Quote. Dear Cindy, dreamed of you again last night, sitting in the yard watching our boys play. 
laughing, running, riding their Hot Wheels, while we waited for our guys to come home from work. Do these people know Jeffrey could read when he was just two? I'll never forget the time he read me the milk carton, how he loved the circus and the zoo, how much he loved both of you. I miss you so much, I wish I had told you that more. I wish I had been able to help. Until we dream again. End quote. It sounds like it's from one of the mother's friends. Uh, the mother, Cindy, she was well, well-liked in, in this community. Um, she worked at a nursing home. And I thought that'd be something to share. I just came across it in the notes. Sometimes you see some really strange stuff in the comments on murder cases. You'll even have people screwing with the victim families if they ever were to read it. But that was a nice one. Thank you to everyone who has come over to support Dark Topic on Patreon. I have some shoutouts uh, here I want to take care of. Ronan Kumori, Nutjob, Kevin Todd, Mark Audette, Rebecca Dezink, sorry Rebecca, Rebecca Dezink, oh shit, that's twice, Rebecca Dezinki, Rebecca the Dinky, Chris Galvin, Hip Hop Club ATX, hey, is that uh, Stephen Rose? Hip Hop Club ATX, maybe I got Rosie on here. Samuel Floyd, Brooke Shell, Annie Hyatt, and April Phelps. Thank you for your high-level support over there on the Dark Topic Patreon. I think that we all know a Jeffrey Franklin, and fortunately, like that priest or preacher or pastor in the story said, the man I took a cheap shot at saying he hadn't had sex, didn't have kids, I don't know that. I'll confess that. But like he said, this shit is normally just a phase. Though it's through stories like this that we're reminded that sometimes it can become much more serious. Cindy and Jerry both had co-workers quietly come forward saying they knew, they knew that things had been getting worse and worse at the Franklin home. That Jeffrey had slowly been taking over and ruling the home with his dark energy. We all want to believe things will be okay, that they'll work themselves out on their own, and that's a form of apathy. Because the truth is, if things aren't great in your life because of one person, if everyone you care about is being affected negatively because of one person, then that person is what needs to be worked out by any means necessary. If not, they become empowered. And our apathy to their behavior is all the invitation that evil needs to begin testing how far it can spread. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked. Those do 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 doors locked. And stay paranoid. Oh, shit. R- can you please rate and review the uh, podcast? It helps. And uh, patreon.com slash darktopic for uh, more exclusive content. Talk at you soon. Thank you. <laughs>